Oh, here we go. Okay. I had a, a glitch in our, our slide deck, so we're there. So some things that destroy happiness. We have hatred, lust, breaking promises, and selfishness. And then this week, we're going to talk about testing that happiness. So I've got it, Luke. They're all there. Yep. Um, testing that happiness. So we summarize it all. We bring it to this point here, these few verses in chapter 5, and we're going to test it. So I'll give you a little bit of a story, a test for me. I was going through seminary at the time, early 2000s, and you know, when you're in seminary, you have all kinds of great discussions that probably should just stay at school, but sometimes they, they get into uh, your discussions at church, and when you're up front, and at the time I was up front leading worship, and I started to talk about some things, and there's a person in the audience who decided that what I said was heretical, and so he wrote a letter giving the reasons for why I was a heretic in saying what I said. Fortunately, uh, to make a long story short, I had the church kind of back me up and say, no, that wasn't a heresy. However, in the process, I thought it was due diligence to write a response back. So if I'm going to be charged with heresy, why not write something back that says, actually, you're a heretic, right? And then go through, and I gave reasons why he was a modalist, which means, you know, different reasons. And at the end... At the end of it, I said to him specifically, and this was probably the area across the line, I said, your theology actually lines up more with the LDS church, so maybe you should go try that one out. And that was probably not the right thing to say. But, I know, it wasn't, it wasn't. And, and I said it, I think, a little nicer way than that. Um, but when people, you know, accuse you of such things as that, you might want to fight back and not show much love and care along the way. We get tested from time to time when we look at Scripture and we begin to read it and we begin to, to learn from it and we're growing and, and we're, we're challenged to apply God's Word and the Scriptures and what it has to say. Well, we're going to be tested today. We're going to be tested to love people who may not be very easy to love. And those who may persecute and those who may write nasty letters to us at times or may say nasty things or may insult us like we talked about last week or may persecute you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. We may need to, at certain times, show love to people that are difficult. So here's our big idea for the day. People who love God love people who don't love God. Okay? People who love God will love people who don't love God. That can be difficult. It's easy to say, well, we love people who love God, but God Himself loves people that don't love Him. In fact, let me say, tell you something that is a kind of a growing trend, may even be hard for you to swallow. You've heard it enough, I certainly have heard it enough on Christian radio stations, that you are worthy of God's love. We like that. It makes us feel good. The reality is we're worthy of God's wrath. The reality is we're worthy of God to show wrath on us and for us to pay the consequences and the price for our sins, right? If you look at Scripture and what it has to say, Oh, it feels much better to say, hey, we're worthy of God's love. God loves us. Listen, it's a lot more freeing, and you understand grace a lot better if you can say, you know what? I don't deserve God's 
love, mercy, and grace, but he gives it to me anyway. That is far greater if you can cross that line and finally say that and say, I don't deserve God. I shouldn't be loved, but he loves me anyway. And the greatest part in that is that it's not dependent on me anymore. I don't have to worry about it. If, if I go through life and I don't feel worthy at times, I know God's word is truth, and I can go back to that, and I can appeal to that, and I can say, okay, God still loves me anyhow. Because he's gracious, and he's good, and he's worthy. It's not about me. So at a time, he showed his love toward us 2,000 years ago. It tells us God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were sinners, while we were unworthy, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, who came and suffered and bled and died for us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us the same things. While we were enemies with God, he reconciled us. He, he was merciful to us, poured out his love towards us. God loved us even though we didn't love him, even though we were enemies. And we need to love people who don't love God. So this week's question, it's a two-parter, okay? Where do I draw the line when it comes to loving others? Stop there. First of all, where do I draw the line? We all have a line somewhere, okay? I guarantee you there's not a person in this room who's perfect at loving. If you are, I'd love to meet you and become your best friend because then I can do all kinds of things and you're still going to love me, right? Okay, none of us are perfect at loving. We all have a line. We all have a, a section or a place where we know if, if somebody pushes us far enough, we're going to show some resistance. We're going to struggle to love people. It could be if they offend us enough times. It could be they, if they offend us to a certain degree. We all have a line somewhere. So where do you draw the line? Where do I draw the line when it comes to loving others? And then secondly, am I secure enough in my relationship with Jesus that I can grow past that line? In other words, can I say that I am so connected with Christ that even though I might put myself out there, even though I might get hurt, even though some other people I love might get hurt, I'll still cross that line because I'm secure enough in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm fulfilled. I'm content in that relationship with Jesus Christ. That I'll, I'll put myself out there a little bit further. That's the question I want to wrestle with. That's the question I've been wrestling with this week, and hopefully that comes out as we move forward, because I think it's really challenging, but I think it's also rewarding. So here we are, Matthew five forty three. Father, teach us as we move into your word today. We want this to be your words, your truth. Guide us. Lord, the things that I would want to put into it, I pray that you would just get those out of my head. Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. And then, Father, we want to take these things and not just keep them in our head. We want to move them to our heart, to our feet. We want to live them out. We want it to go out and impact other people because that's what you've called us to be, light and salt in this earth. Make a difference. Make a change for you. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we've talked about a lot of you've heard that it was said comments up to this point. This is the one comment where you can't go back to the Old Testament and find it word for word. Now, the first part, you can. You can go back to the Old Testament and find, love your neighbor. And you can go to Leviticus 19.18, and this is what it says. It says, do not retake revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, okay, within uh, Israel itself. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, it seems to be 
just kind of conventional wisdom that if you're not to take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your own community, Israel, that you love them, you care for them, but those who are outside of that community, well, maybe you can go ahead and, and show some hatred towards them. And so that became the conventional wisdom of the day, and Jesus, pulls, or Jesus points it out, and he says, you've heard it said, and maybe it was taught, that you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy, but the unconventional wisdom, which Jesus is going to tell us here, is that you love your enemies, and you pray for those who persecute you. So he gives you two commands. The first one is love, and the second is to pray for. Now, you can do one without the other, but they work much better when you do it together. You love for people, you're concerned about people, that causes you to pray for them, hopefully. And if you pray for them, that oftentimes softens your heart towards them, and you love them. So he tells you to do both. And he also tells you it's people who persecute you, so it's people who are against God and against the faith. It's people who will say to you, what you're doing is wrong. Your belief system is wrong. Your God is wrong. There is no God or things like that. People that will put you down, say you're, you're dumb, you're stupid for believing in what you believe. Or people that will be angry because your God didn't give them what they wanted. And you'll run across that quite a bit, right? I prayed to God. He didn't answer my, my prayers. Therefore, there must not be a God. People who will persecute you. Maybe they'll insult you. Maybe you'd be in a country or a place at some point in time when they might even put you in prison. We know that's happening across our world. Churches will be burned down. Houses will be burned down. People will be thrown into jail. People will be killed for their faith. He says, pray for those. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Why? Well, continuing on, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, you could argue from this verse that in order to be children, you need to love your enemies. I don't think that's what he's saying here. You have to take it in the, the context of all of Scripture. In all of Scripture, we know that we become children of God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. But we also know, if you go back 2,000 years ago, that a son would often become what his father was. In fact, Jesus is often referred to as Jesus the carpenter. Why? Because Joseph was a carpenter. It was just assumed, especially the oldest son. And I think the idea here is, and Jesus plays off of this in the culture, and he says, listen, if, if your father loves your enemies, his enemies, then as children we ought to as well. That's what he's telling us. And he goes on, put in the context right here. He says, For he causes his son, or the son, to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So when you look at the earth and you put all the people on it, God causes the sun and the rain to come down on people who are both wicked and righteous. You can take a picture if you want to visualize a little bit. We know just by going and walking around that there are people out there that don't love God that hate God, that want nothing to do with God. But there's no dark cloud over their head, literally, right? The sun shines on them just like it shines on you. And we know that when it rains, and here I think the sense is good. I know in Idaho, rain is kind of evil for some reason. 
If it rains more than like three hours, people are like, oh, I hate the rain. I'm like, move to western Washington. <laughs> Live there for a little while. But here the idea, I mean, we're an agricultural community, so we understand the importance of rain, but certainly they had and needed rain to grow their crops. And so here he's saying it rains on both the, the righteous and the evil. And so what we have here is a teaching that we've, we've come to know or we've come to title common grace, that God is gracious towards all who are on the earth to some degree. Okay, he, he, he chooses to give grace to those who are right and those who are wrong. He chooses to let his, his sun shine on both. He doesn't put a dark cloud over them or he doesn't say, okay, you guys get more rain, you get less rain. He, he set it up way back when, you know, when he created all things, that the, the earth would rotate at a certain time and the sun would shine, and it doesn't matter if you're right, if you're wrong, if you're good, if you're evil, you're going to receive sun on your head. On your head. Okay, that was God's plan. The same is true, and I think we also need to remind ourselves of this, that calamity, consequences of a world and a sinful world affect both the righteous and the unrighteous as well. If good affect both, well, then bad can affect both. That's why Christians also struggle with things like death of loved ones, maybe early on, uh, or cancer, economy starts to turn, Christians lose their jobs. You know, there, there's things like that that happen to us because of a fallen world. And it's not select. So we're reminded of that in that passage here where he talks about how the sun and the rain fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He goes on in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Now, I want to hit a passage here, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. It says this, love is patient and kind. I don't know if you've ever tried to define love. It's extremely difficult to do. And what I point people to, and they say, what is love? I'll just go right here. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. You can look really 1 through 7 as well. But 4 through 7, give us the best definition for love. It's God's definition. Love is patient, is kind. Love is jealous or love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice or does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Now, God gives us that here in this passage, and He tells us back in this passage here in Matthew that we're to love all people, even our enemies. Now, maybe you're asking a question in your mind, because at this point, this is where I ask a question. Is there a point in which we might love someone dear to us more than we would love an enemy? And that's probably where I struggle the most with with this passage. Is there a difference? Well, God calls us to love all. Enemies, friends, 
people who are near and dear, people who are, are far from God, people who don't know God, people that don't want anything to do with God. He asks us to love both. And I think he uses the same word here in Matthew that he does in 1 Corinthians to define what love is. Therefore, we're to have that same kind of love with all people. But a funny thing happens. So 20 years ago, I stood in front of a crowd of people, and I made a commitment to one individual to love and honor and cherish that person more than I made a commitment to other people. Her name's Rebecca. She's become my wife. Now she's the mother of our kids, and we're a family together. And she is a priority of love that exceeds others. I want to try to explain this the best way I can. So, so she, she is one that I will love more. In fact, if you were to ask my kids, okay, who is going to be, and we use this probably the wrong way, but we'll use it like this, you know, who, do I, who would I love more in our family? They'll go, well, you love mom more. <laughs> like, you're right. Okay? And that's something we have, we have to fight for in a family. I'll be honest with you. This is so parenting 101 for you, Okay. When you get married and you make that commitment, husband and wife stick together. Your kids will try to drive you apart. Okay? Stick together. And there are times where we physically have to separate our kids. We've got to pull them, not so much anymore. Emily's kind of a little bigger to carry now. But, but sometimes we'll, we have to pick them up and move them to the side. And mom and dad stay together physically, emotionally, and we're connected together first. Right? That's, she's my priority. Outside of God, she's my next priority. Then my kids. Then the friends. And well, after that, I'd say it's my parents. I think scripturally it says I need to take care of my parents. And then beyond that, it goes to family, friends, and others. That's the, that's the priority. That's the order that God establishes for us. But I need to love all people the same way. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we can get confused a little bit and say, oh, no, God wants us to love this person more than this person. No, our love needs to be carried out in the same way. But this person over here may have a greater priority when it comes to love and the time that I can afford to give to such a person. So he ends this passage with this one, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's where it becomes really difficult. The word perfect means perfect. Uh, it can also mean to mature or grow and be completed. E- any way you try to uh, redefine the Greek word here, you're going to end up with something that's difficult to accomplish or even impossible. When he says to be perfect or complete or fully grown as your heavenly Father is, that's where it gets difficult because none of us know we can be just like our heavenly Father. So how is this even possible? Well, that's what I want to get to uh, as we kind of just summarize and look at loving people that don't love God. So in your bulletins, I don't know if you follow along, I don't always follow the outlines that I put in the bulletins, but I put an outline in there. Some of you guys are more linear thinkers and you just want everything just kind of, you know, this is point one, two, three, A, B, C, all that kind of stuff. But I'll go ahead and work through this and bring us to that last point and talk through that. Conventional wisdom on love and enemies says to love your neighbors and hate 
your enemies. Okay, we see that. We saw it then, 2,000 years ago, and we see it today. Are you guys following the story with uh, the, the celebrities right now? The college scandal, college entrance scandal, you see some of that happening. Uh, some of you may have already known Lori Laughlin. She was part of uh, Family Matters, I think it was. Full House, sorry. I always call Family Matters. That was a totally different show, sorry. Full House, okay. Her house was full uh, at the time. I remember watching that as a kid, and she was the, the mom that everybody wanted, right? She was the nice, sweet, kind, gentle mom. Today, she is, uh, she's in some shows, Wind Calls the Heart, and she's the mayor of the town, and very, very wise and gentle and loving, and then uh, she's been in some Hallmark movies, Hallmark movies, you know, everybody knows what those are about, predictable stories, yet everybody wants to watch them time and time again. Okay, we all, we all love those. So she's in all these, and she's just kind of known as this really sweet, kind, gentle person until about a week ago. And now, there's a lot of people that don't like her. In our world, who would be out there saying, oh, we need to, to love all of our neighbors and, and tolerate our enemies. That's probably what they would say. Tolerate our enemies has just put her through the ringer. Now, she is suffering some consequences to her actions. I'm not trying to downplay those at all. I'm just trying to point out that our world that wants to tout tolerance and love and forgiveness and all of that, as soon as somebody out there makes a mistake, well, they get mud thrown at them, right? Conventional wisdom then and today is love your neighbors and hate your enemies. We see it played out all the time. See it in the political field. That's all I got to do is bring up politics. Like, oh, yep, right there, right? Love your neighbors, hate your enemies. When Jesus shows up, he has a different wisdom on love and enemies. This is what he tells us. First, love your enemies, 1 Corinthians 13. All right, we looked at that one. Feel free to write that down. Please write it down. I'll challenge you one more time with it. But know 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. Pray for your faith records. There are people out there who will try to wreck your faith. They'll persecute you. They'll tell you that you're wrong. They will tell you that parts of your faith may be wrong and that other parts of your faith may be right, and, and they'll try to you know, change what you believe, whatever it is. There are people out there that will try to discourage you from following God. Pray for them. Pray for them. You go back into the, Old, the New Testament when Jesus, after he had already come upon the earth, he had walked upon the earth, he had gone up to heaven, and he had assigned those to carry out the gospel into the early church. There was a guy who was walking around. His name was Saul. And he was persecuting the church. And he was, he was putting people into prison. And he was having people killed. And he was hurling all kinds of insults at people. And there were those who said, but they want nothing to do with, with Saul. And they pushed him away. And then God saves him. He saved him, and then he turned Paul around. His name went from Saul to Paul, turned him around, and then he becomes a champion for the gospel. And he becomes a champion for the early church. And he becomes one of the first church planters to go out into the Gentile world and plant churches in non-Jewish areas, non-Jewish places. You never know what God's going to do with people. And some of the worst people out there God may take and transform their hearts. Pray for them. And prayer will not only help you know, to work in their heart and life, but it's going to help you as well. 
Because as you pray for people who may persecute you, your heart might be softer towards them and there would be less anger and bitterness in our hearts. And then follow the family plan. Jesus talked about his father and how his father was gracious and merciful and how his father demonstrated love towards his enemies just like he does towards us. Remember, you and I are not worthy of God's love. We are enemies. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is a true statement. We are not worthy of his love, yet he still loves us. He chose to love us when we are his enemies. Follow the family plan. If God the Father said this is the way to love and care for people, then we ought to do the same. Here's how we do it. We care for God's children and enemies. We act differently than other families. The rest of the world will say, hey, don't, uh, don't love like that. Don't love those who will hurt you or persecute you. But God says, no, do it. And then we strive for perfection. Now, I want to break that one down a little bit more. When we come to the end of chapter 5, he tells us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, which I think is a summary of, of verses 21 through 48. If you go back, he talks about how we are to, to love, or excuse me, how we are to, um, to not lust and how we are not to, to hate people. He challenges us in the area of, of fulfilling our commitments. When we say we're going to do something, we need to follow through. He challenges us in the area of selfishness. He says, don't be selfish. And then here he challenges us with the idea of loving our, our enemies. And then he talks about, or I want to bring this out anyhow, because we talked about this at the beginning of chapter 5, and I think it's really important that we hit on this again, because I think there's an, a misconception if we say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that somehow we have to be perfect in order to earn God's favor and His love. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying you've already earned God's favor and love, therefore now strive to be more like Him. And so I gave you a diagram like this at the beginning, that at one point we were dead in our sins. Okay, this is taken from Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in our sin. We're separated from God. And once we place our faith in Christ, we're actually united with God. And we've been justified. And we're at a, a point where He no longer sees our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness on our behalf now. Okay? That's positional. So positionally, we're safe. Positionally, we're right before God. It's not dependent on our works. It's dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. How do you have a relationship with the Almighty God who created you? You have a relationship with Him because of what Jesus Christ has done, not based on your works. That needs to be really clear for the next step. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, you're on this trajectory and that trajectory, and you can kind of see the graph has a lot of ups and downs, but is supposed to be going steadily up. And that is we're becoming more and more like Christ in the way we live out our faith, in the way we treat other people. And so our trajectory is, is filled with, you know, high hills and valleys, dips and heights and so forth, but our trajectory is to continue to go up, an upward slant. And that's our progressive growth. That's our sanctification. So when he tells us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, we're to move in that direction. We're to move forward, being more like Him, because we've already placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So we're challenged once again with this idea that people who love God love people who don't love God. Now, summarize a little bit, or challenge us with some application pieces here. Steps to stretch the love. 
I thought that was clever, but I don't get too many clever responses. So, steps to stretch the love, okay? Um, here's, uh, here's some things you can do to stretch yourself in this area of loving people. One, pray for growth. It comes back to that. Prayer changes our hearts. Prayer changes our hearts before God. We can come before Him and realize as we're praying for growth in this area, to be more loving, to be more kind, to be more gracious towards people, that God will do a work in our hearts. One of the things that affects us greatly, we have to realize, is bitter and angerness. Um, when people, or excuse me, bitterness and anger, sorry. Uh, when people hurt us, when people insult us, when they say things against us, we'll often let anger and bitterness creep in. And not only does it affect our relationship with that person, it oftentimes will affect our relationship with other people, and it can go so bad as even to affect our health. We have to be careful. And when we begin to see anger and bitterness creep into our hearts and our lives, we need to pray. We need to pray for that person that maybe we're even angry with. So pray for growth. Secondly, read, reread, or even memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 starts off, says, If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but of not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. Meaning, if I have love, or if I, if I talk about it, but there's no real authentic, genuine love behind it, it's just noisy. And people don't hear it. And then it challenges. Love is patient. Love is kind. does not envy. does not boast. It's not proud. It's not self-seeking. It's not rude. And, and this is the one that's hard for me. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, love is patient. That one's tough. starts right off the bat with that one. But the whole, you know, keeps no record of wrongs, that one's tough too. Because after a person has offended or insulted you a number of times, it's hard to keep going past that, right? There's that line in the sand, you almost feel like, you know, well, that person's challenged it to a point, and and now I, I can't step over that because they've hurt us so many times. But love keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus said, you have to forgive 70 times 7. Okay, that's a lot. I'm like, seven times, that's a lot. Times 70 times, right? 490. And I don't think we're keeping track up to 490 and then we stop. The idea is we continue to forgive because God continues to forgive us and love us. We stay accountable. We have people in our lives where we uh, can go to and talk about maybe there is something that's, that's kind of creeping up and we begin to have a little bit of... Um, anger and bitterness that's creeping in, and maybe we can talk to somebody. We're not talking to them to bash on a person. We're, we're truly going to that person to say, hey, this is an area where I'm struggling. I'm struggling to care for this person, love this person. And they, hope, they hold us accountable, say we need to be praying for them. Remember what God says about love and how we're to love and care for them. And then we need to persevere, so we need to keep moving forward. Even when it's difficult, even when we're pushed up to that line, God's asking us to cross over it because our security is in Him. And we can trust that when we cross over and we do what God wants us to do, we're doing the right thing. And God blesses and honors that. And we may not see it right away, but we know that He blesses and honors those who follow in the direction He wants them to go. So as you think about a lot of those things and what He's talking about here, I just want to challenge you to respond with a couple questions. I'll give you a couple minutes to reflect on these things. And then we'll close together. Here's the first one. Do you know some people who don't 
or who do not love God? Who are they, and how can you pray for them? Do you know some people who do not love God? Who are they, and how can you pray for them? The second one is like it. Uh, The second one is, what is one practical way you can love an enemy this week? Maybe it's just praying for them. Maybe it's writing them a note. Maybe it's saying hi to them when you're walking down the hall instead of turning away. How can you practically love an enemy, a person who doesn't know God, a person who maybe has made that clear, or maybe it's just somebody you just feel like there's tension you're at odds with? How can you practically love an enemy this week? So I'll give you a couple minutes to think about those things, and then we'll close in prayer.